Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery, and tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Amanda Lynn Pallada. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington Department of Biomedical Informatics and Medical Education. She also just completed her dissertation in computational linguistics in 2021, also at the University of Washington, where she studied the impact of natural language processing. In this series, our goal is just to take one article or idea and examine the larger implications. And for today, we're going to take a deeper dive into your recent article in the Gradient called Machine Translation Shifts Power, um, which was a runner-up for the inaugural Gradient Prize. And I, I like this article for many reasons. And one, uh, I, the opening is scary. It has a, uh, the idea is that technology is being used to translate languages, which we know of. I mean, so we kind of are used to doing this with our Google or anything like that. Um, but you provide a frightening example from DHS where extreme vetting will also include using Google Translate to facilitate DHS being able to read social media posts um, and then being used at the border. I thought maybe you could talk briefly about that example that you opened with. But also what I liked about this is that you put it into the historical context of how the practice of translation has long been shaped by power asymmetries, like that it's been a tool in many ways. And so I think the more that we automate this, the more we forget that this is a, it's been a a tool or a tactic that's been used. So if you could say a little bit about the opening and then some of the history. Sure. So I'll also mention something kind of funny about that example is that the extreme vetting uh, that happens at the U.S. border Um, I don't actually know if it's still happening, but where um, foreigners who wanted to gain entry into the U.S. either for travel or for work or whatever, they were also vetting social media posts in English. And there was a British national who was denied entry because he had tweeted something about wanting to tear up or destroy the U.S. Um, And this was slang Mm. saying that he wanted to party. So it's funny that even within English, like the same language that is being spoken, you know, predominantly in the U.S., like there can still be these really grave misunderstandings even when there isn't a language barrier. And so, yeah, I think that's just to say that the issue isn't just that we're deploying translation to kind of surveil people's casual social media posts, but even within the same language, there can be these grave misunderstandings. Um, But yeah, I think part of what led me to write this article was reading about that and finding it sort of disturbing that, you know, you can be subject to having your social media scanned and potentially mistranslated or taken out of context in such a way that you could just be denied entry and have to go back. And yeah. Um, what was the second part of your question? Just about like, the, there's also been this history of the use of machine oh, translation yeah. to exert power. I just uh, I, what, what I like about people that look at the history is it's not it's, it's not really the technology being used, or the, it's, there's problems with the technology that we're using with machine translation, but this use of translation to exert power has existed for forever, as long as we've been translating. Yeah. So I was interested in looking at when the first kind of machine translation efforts in the US were being undertaken. And a lot of it was to kind of be able to translate Russian military research for a sort of kind of gaining intel about um, during the Cold War, what Russian scientists were working on. So I think just kind of like the very assumption that you can use technology to translate what a language that you don't understand, there's sort of this like presumption that you should have access to some document. And if you don't understand it, you should be able to kind of reveal what it, you know, quote, really says. 
without having to spend the time to learn the language or the cultural references or whatever. It's sort of this like, I guess in a sort of sinister and maybe dark way, it kind of reminds me of there's this sort of trend of um, computer vision applications where it's like filling in a missing part of an image or like trying to generate what would this person look like without clothes on. Mm. So it's like something that you don't have access to, but you're trying to use technology to say, I would like access to this information or to generate something that would otherwise cost me some effort to figure out or to, yeah, get access to. Oh, interesting. Right. So this is, I mean, in some ways uh, you're saying that if I understand correctly, that we could take the time to actually get to know the language and do it in a more thoughtful way. And then this is uh, in some ways like filling in the gaps of an image. It's somewhat using machine translation to fill in the gaps of a language, which is also a culture. Yeah. Like I think for me, kind of like the dystopian future technology that really worries me is like everyone has like something. I mean, I guess this was uh, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Babblefish, where it's just like a little thing that sits in your ear and you can just eavesdrop on any conversation in any language. And I think that really worries me because I think um, I think right off the bat, when you're eavesdropping on somebody, it's easy to take things out of context. But sometimes people code switch into a different language than the dominant one surrounding them for like safety reasons or just because they want to, you know, it's sort of a choice that you make to try to obscure what you're saying. And if someone has universal access to that, Putting aside whether the translation is accurate or not, if someone believes that they can just eavesdrop on any language, I think that's pretty dangerous. Interesting, because you you note that I think in the past that machine translation is, you say, exerted power over subordinate groups, those that don't necessarily control the technology but are the subject of it. I think the term you used was linguistic suppression or forced translation, which is a little bit like this idea of forced translation of um, not having your own language to yourself, like being... The idea of eavesdropping almost. Yeah, um, I guess there what I was referring to also was even before, you know, the concept of machine translation existed, colonial subjects were forced to learn the languages of, you know, whoever was colonizing them and were punished, sometimes like corporally punished for speaking their native languages. And so there's a lot Mm -hmm. of them. I mean, I guess this is sort of worldwide. A lot of indigenous languages were like really beaten out of people because they were forced to learn the language of the colonizers. And so there's a lot of like forgetting or a lot of language loss that has happened because of this sort of like, we need to be able to manage you and understand you. So you have to speak our language. Yeah. I feel like that's sort of an abstract way of putting that, but yeah, that's well, and I think you can see the power in a few different ways. So there's the, you know, the decision as to whose language is dominant. Uh, you mentioned that even the decision as to which language to prioritize is political, like the Russian example that you gave previously, where we were worried about the Soviet Union. And so we prioritize certain languages to learn those translations before others that might have been for other reasons and not for uh, wartime reasons. And then this idea, which I had not thought about what that Google's history that there's certain companies that based on just their resources and their assets like Google, that they just have this unbelievable advantage now to be the, go, the go-to place for translation because of the text that they have for de- from decades of collection of it. Yeah. And I think, like, I don't want to deny that it's useful to have free access to translation software. Like, I certainly use it quite a bit, and I'm sure a lot of people do. But yeah, there is this sort of, there was an article that I mentioned in my article, and I'm forgetting the author, I'm sorry, but talking about how this sort of automatic translation industry has like shifted away a lot of 
the industry towards these tech giants and away from people who are professional interpreters and translators. And I think um, I, I know of some situations where um, it would be a lot more, I mean, in really like high stakes scenarios where it would be nice to have a human interpreter to have a little more sensitivity to talk about a really sensitive topic, but instead like they're under-resourced or unable to find them. And so there's this reliance on technology, which even yeah. if it's, I guess, something that I have less expertise in is different theories of translation. And I think um, certain kinds of texts, like I don't think you can get a perfect word-to-word translation. Like I don't think that the algorithms that do machine translation now can convey certain things like how to convey something in a culturally sensitive way. Like you can translate something word for word or sentence for sentence and get an approximation of this is literally what is being said, but that doesn't take into account, I think, culturally relevant ways of communicating things. and. I think my worry is that people will say, oh, well, we can build that into the technology too. And I don't know if you can, because um, it's like a really contextual and subtle thing. So I think making machine translation tools more adaptable to real situations in which they're being used, I think people are working on that. And I think that makes a lot more sense where like you could have someone who is a professional translator who has an assistant or sorry, an automated assistant to kind of help them partly do part of the job. And then they can do the rest of the you know, the culturally relevant translation or the, like keeping a person in the loop to make sure that things are being conveyed, not just accurately, but also in a way that will, you know, be socially and culturally relevant. Right. And we, we see this, as you point out from the beginning, that we see this even with English to English translation. So within the United States, you could have different cultures or different groups of people. Um, you could have something that's a dialect within English and then have like the example you had from someone from England saying that they're going to tear up the United States. And all they meant was that they wanted to party. They didn't mean that they were a terrorist. And this idea can happen with content moderation and along yeah. those lines. And you could see how it could be even worse uh, with actual translation from a foreign language, where if we're having trouble English to English translation, that we might have trouble with French to English, but then even more so like a, a smaller language, which has a smaller footprint, so fewer people that speak it. And so this, you're saying that this problem, we face this all over the place and we just, we see it even more so in this area of machine translation of foreign languages, which which makes sense. I mean, since we're having trouble with English, you would imagine that we're going to have trouble with other languages as well. Yeah, I think there's also, this kind of reminds me of like a sort of concept from like literary critique of like paranoid reading. Like I think a lot of these mm. really high stakes scenarios are because the person consuming the translation is a paranoid reader. Like they want to find something. Like I think when you're, you know, dealing with, like the Department of Homeland Security, I think by off the bat, this is sort of going to be a paranoid reading of whatever action or text or whatever they interpret in someone who's just trying to enter the country. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. So it's, it's, it's different if I'm looking for a translation because I'm trying to find a restaurant and I'm not a paranoid reader at that point. I'm trying to look something up. Yeah. But this idea of that the reader actually has uh, a disposition or an objective in trying to find something. So that's the point of the translation is that they have some sort of goal or point, point of view, uh, the uh, kind of a worldview that they're bringing to the situation. Um, and so that would be different when you're looking at even content moderation. It's the same thing. We're looking for problems. And if you're DHS, you're definitely looking for a problem. That's the entire reason why you're there. Um, and that we have to understand in those high stakes situations, how these translations could be read. Yeah. And who bears the cost of a mistranslation? 
whether it's a developer or the actual user, the subject coming across the border for that matter. Yeah, for sure. I, so I, what I, what I liked about, which I didn't understand um, previous to this, and this is because I'm not a linguistic, so, so I, I, I wouldn't know this, but I, I, it was interesting to read about one, the history about as to how translation and machine translation in general has, is about politics and power, the language that's being chosen, which ones are being prioritized, how it's used to subordinate different groups, how the different uh, ideas of like the different people that are even able to translate. So whether you have like unique knowledge or if you're Google and you just have more text, that these are all issues of power um, that they've always been going on. And so now we have this situation um, with machine translation. And I I also thought was interesting was this other issue, which you kind of touched upon with this idea of not being culturally sensitive. I thought, could you say a little bit, you mentioned there was a lawsuit against Microsoft, um, which I just thought was interesting because it says how someone who who is a person of that language might think about their translation. So that was um, an article from, I guess, maybe 10 years ago or more um, that was talking about how Microsoft released a version of Windows in Mapudungun, which is an indigenous language spoken in Chile. And um, there was, I think Microsoft had collaborated with the Chilean government, but not the actual like Mapuche tribe. And I think there's this sort of conflation or misunderstanding that, you know, like indigenous groups worldwide are not necessarily represented by the state whose borders they live in. And so I think Mm -hmm. they, you know, got what they believed was consent from the Chilean government, but not from the actual tribe, if I'm remembering the details correctly. And so, yeah, I think if you're dealing with like a global North or Western entity, like really your only recourse is to issue a lawsuit because like what, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I sort of wonder about these sort of, Western legal tools like licensing or lawsuits as a, I mean, like what other way can you get enforcement or Mm -hmm. attention on an issue? I'm still kind of thinking about this myself. Like what, what do you do in that situation to enforce like consent or like a use that the people who speak the language find appropriate? I don't know. I'm still thinking about kind of with tools yeah. to communicate. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I take lawsuits. What I, when I read that, I thought, it, what it, to me, what it illustrated was uh, the offense that was taken at one, the lack of consent to be translated. And then second, the kind of indignities of how the translation went, you know, so, and I, it made me think differently. So in that way, it just showed that the people of a language would see this differently than the the power that's saying, oh, you're so lucky we're going to translate you. <laughs> and so um, where they might think that's one, you did it poorly and you never asked, you know? And so I, I think that that's what that lawsuit kind of spoke to is that when we're thinking about translation, there's a lot more going on than just, oh, now uh, the Western world can kind of translate your language. The other, the people that are being translated might not think of it that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess another thing I wonder about too, is like, who does speak for a language? Like I could imagine that you know, for languages that don't have a lot of speakers, I guess like different languages have different kind of governing bodies and not all of them do have this, but yeah, even for languages with like hundreds of thousands of speakers, like I sort of wonder, is there, there's probably not even consensus among them, you know, what to do with the language or how to document or not document it or whatever. Yeah. I think um, that too is something I wonder about, like, I think there's different, within different cultures and linguistic communities, there's probably also different ways of having consensus of like, yeah, how do we want to 
communicate our language and share it or not share it. I'm, I'm hoping to spend some more time also like theorizing, like what is a language to the people who speak it and like who gets to kind of set the terms of when a language gets to be used or... Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I think what's interesting about it is the use of... I, there's one, I think what's interesting is that the use of machine translation just as its own, but then the, the general use of large language models and all the issues that come with it carry a lot of the same issues that you find here. I like what you said, translation remains a political act and data-driven machine translation developments largely centered in industry complicate the mechanisms by which translation shifts power. And we could say, I could have said that same thing and talked about large language models at the same time. Yeah. And I think that that's what... Um, in some ways, this one small issue around DHS, which wasn't small, I just mean like a news article, really uh, one instance of the use of machine translation really opened up and there was a lot more going on. At one point you mentioned that we're trying to like uncover what's made obscure and you were talking about something else, but I just thought in general, what your article did was try to uncover what was obscured by just this idea of a machine translation tool was that there's a lot more going on with power and politics. And in fact, those things going on with power and politics have actually been going on for decades in this space. Sure. Um, and this is just the latest manifestation of that. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, I almost felt like when I was writing this article, I sort of struggled with like, what am I saying that's new here? Like, this is the same thing for almost every right? technology. Yeah. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think the people in the technology don't realize that, right? Like, so the people that are developing it all the time don't know that history. And so that we face this a lot. And so that's why it's helpful, I think, to say we've actually we've actually done this before. Um, and this is what we have to watch out for. We have to be thoughtful about these issues because translation is not some sort of neutral act. Right. It's incredibly political and it, it's shifting power all the time, which I just think is a good reminder when we're talking about like a, a quick search of your social media, which happens to be even in English right. is a problem. Yeah. Well, great. So normally I ask people what made them write the story, but uh, you obviously had a specific article, which was great, that, that was like the impetus for the article. Um, but I wondered, in general, in this area, like who in tech ethics, who should we be paying attention to in the area of tech ethics? And are there any particular scholars that you're following right now? Or who should we be watching out for? Yeah. Um, so I wrote down a few names in preparation. <laughs> um, so there's an article that just came out that I'm excited to read by Chelsea Barabbas called Refusal and Data Ethics. Um, that's the main title, but there's a subtitle too. But yeah, I'm excited to read that one. I guess on this, this I guess this is like less ethics specific, but more kind of like around theorizing data and the current kind of big data moment. So um, there's a short-ish article by Ranjit Singh called something about the decolonial turn. Uh, oh, uh-huh. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, the decolonial turn is on the road to contingency. Um, that's sort of like um, rethinking this thesis around data colonialism. And then um, the last one I'll say that I've been recommending to a lot of people lately is um, a talk by Danielle Carr that's on YouTube called But Is It Labor? And this is also sort of talking through like different ways of thinking about data. Like I think there's a lot of people trying to theorize like what is data that especially in this moment where like everything is digital and we're just sort of constantly by merely existing, just generating streams of data that could be worth something to somebody like theorizing, like, are we doing labor when we do that? Or like, do we own mm -hmm. this data? And in what sense do we own it? So yeah, I'm, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and trying to understand a little bit more of and trying to re-theorize. I think I've changed a lot of my thinking around, you know, data broadly construed in the last year. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's interesting. I have a, a friend of mine, um, Taewon Kim, who wrote about, and this is within a business school, but his argument was a little bit about users actually need to be thought of as actually investors. Mm. And so as in they're investing, they're, they're in some ways more invested in the company than anybody else because <laughs> they've given their data over. Um, and now it's being used in this way, mm. similar to like capital by stockholders or, and so he makes an, ob, he makes almost an, an argument that you have to be, you should be obligated to them in the same way that you feel obligated as a firm, mm, as a company to other people, which I, and I think it's useful to stop thinking of people as just users. And so labor or, investors are ways of making them seem thicker than mere users that just drop off their data and leave because that's not what they're doing. And so I think that's that's a great point that we need to start theorizing about people and also their data in different ways. Um, because the way that we do it now is fairly abstract, both the person and the data. So that's a great point. Well, gosh, those are great recommendations. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know you have a lot more to write in this area. So I look forward to seeing even more um, in the future. And so I'm sure we'll have you back with your next article or something along those lines. So with that, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.